you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we're going to continue our three-part series exploring the lives of Tennessee's three presidents, Andrew Jackson, James K. Polk, and Andrew Johnson. It's interesting to note that none of those three men were actually born in Tennessee, but each spent the majority of their lives in this state and were elected to the White House while calling Tennessee home. Each of the three had an enormous impact upon Tennessee and United States history over a time frame that spans over 40 years, Jackson being elected in 1828 and Andrew Johnson ending his term in 1869. Of course, their contributions have been felt far beyond their presidential terms. Many of their policies are still relevant to this day. It is also interesting to note that Murray County, Tennessee, was, in a way, a crossroads in their lives. Each of them spent time here, and James K. Poe considered Murray County to be his home. Today, we'll be discussing perhaps the most well-known of the three, Andrew Jackson. My co-host, Dr. Barry Goodcomb, is with me in the studio. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Tom. And we're joined remotely today by Marsha Mullen, who is the Vice President of Collections and Research and the Chief Curator at the Hermitage, the home of Andrew Jackson, just outside of Nashville. Good morning, Marsha. Good morning. Marsha, how long have you been at the Hermitage? Uh, I've been here for 33 years. Which is pretty incredible. I often say, having spent... Uh, nearly 30 years in museums myself, one of the benefits is supposed to be moving around from museum to museum. It's kind of the fun part of the career path, but neither one of us chose that. I was 21 years with Polk, and uh, you with over 30 years with Andrew Jackson. What was your career path that brought you to the Hermitage, and what made you stay so long? Um, I, I had worked in another museum, and it was a completely different kind of history. And I was looking for a... a a change. Uh, the institution that I had been working for kind of <clears throat> switched gears in midstream. And um, I thought that maybe an earlier period of history would be, I don't know, less controversial, which shows just how dumb I was when I came <laughs> here. <laughs> what, is it, what is it about Jackson that captures your interest? Well, he's one of those people that you always have known about. In fact, oddly enough, I went to Andrew Jackson High School. So I did my fair share of book reports on Andrew Jackson. Uh, but he, he's just, um, oh, he seems like the first president that sort of is approachable. I don't know. He's not really approachable. I guess it's he's the first one that doesn't seem like he's so far back in history that you can't quite relate to him. 
Huh. Interesting. I think approachable is an interesting term to use. He, of course, is remembered as the first president to come from the West, sort of very different from those elitists uh, from Virginia and New England uh, in in American history. Every president prior to him sort of fit that bill. So I I think approachable is, I I think, an interesting way to look at him. So there have been a number of presidential rankings over time, starting in 1948 with historian Arthur Schlesinger's ranking and continuing through C-SPAN and others. In those rankings, Jackson has been ranked as high as number five in the 1996 Lessinger poll and as low as 19 in the Siena College poll in 2018. Uh, so he's always ranked among the most successful of the presidents. Overall, and looking at the various rankings, we tend to see a downward trend over time for Jackson. C-SPAN, for instance, had Jackson ranked up at number 13 in their first two rankings and down to number 18 in their last one in 2017. What, what do you attribute the downturn in Jackson's rankings to? Well, I think one of the issues with Jackson is, is that um, as time has passed, the things that he was involved in his presidency, uh, certain things have become more important and other things have become less important. Dr. Bob Remini, who wrote uh, the kind of definitive 20th century biography of Jackson, said that when he was in grad school, nobody ever even talked about Indian removal. It was just not even a subject. And now it seems like it's one of the only things many people know about Andrew Jackson. And in that context, um, you know, it's a less than favorable Right. I, I find it interesting. For him. And um, so I think that contributes something to the fall in the rankings. Right. I, I find it interesting that Polk, perhaps the staunchest supporter of Jackson and Jacksonian policies, has not been criticized as much in the polls as Jackson has, even though he continued with Jackson's Indian removal policy, even though he was a slaveholder himself. In the Siena ranking that was so hard on Jackson, for instance, Polk was ranked higher than Jackson in both of their polls. Uh, So why do you think Jackson is such a target over other presidents that were also engaged in Indian removal and slavery? Uh, and then they all were. I mean, the, the early of the early presidents, only uh, John Quincy Adams and John Adams were not slaveholders, and so uh, he was certainly not unusual in that respect. I think because he both fought Indians militarily and um, actively pushed for the Indian Removal Act, all the other activities of the earlier presidents toward Indian issues were kind of low-key or under the radar. The Indian Removal Act is like right in your face. Sure. And um, so I think that's some of it. I think it shows a real lack of understanding of what all was going on. I mean, there had been various efforts to either remove or contain Indians for a long time. And so uh, Jackson was certainly not proposing anything that was radically new. Sure. Um, Andrew Jackson has been in a lot of recent news, with a few writers making a comparison between President Trump and Andrew Jackson. Trump himself has been clear that he admires Jackson, perhaps above all other presidents. In fact, Trump visited the Hermitage shortly after his inauguration. Did you, were you part of of Trump's visit? Uh, I was present. I did not get to meet President Trump. Um, 
there was a lot going on and the Secret Service was pretty particular about groups that actually got close to him. And so I escorted the dogs through the mansion when they were sniffing for bombs. <laughs> well, uh, that's uh, that's something. <laughs> what What is your take on the Trump-Jackson comparison? I think it's kind of superficial. I mean, the... the the obvious thing is that, you know, they were both very different than their predecessors. And um, let's just leave it at that. Okay. All right. The, I think the biggest comparisons, of course, the idea of populism that's going on around – that's going on around Mr. Trump now and Jackson during his time, that whole common man idea, the fact that they were both considered sort of Washington outsiders as well. And, of course, yes. both are sort of these larger-than-life figures too publicly. Um, Jackson has always been a little bit controversial. Even his birthplace and parentage seems a little bit up in the air. Where was he born and under what circumstances? Well, he was born somewhere on the border between North and South Carolina. Um, both states claim him. Jackson himself always thought that he was born in South Carolina. Um, so it's uh, a little bit unknown because his family was going through quite uh, a traumatizing time at the time of his birth. His parents had emigrated from Northern Ireland uh, with his two older brothers, and Jackson was his mother was pregnant with Andrew Jackson when his father was killed in a farming accident, and so he his father actually died just a few months before he was born. And because of that situation, his mother was kind of on the move, um, staying with various relatives, and it's a little unclear exactly where she was at the time that Jackson was born. Uh, remind us what year he was born. 1767. So born in 1767. So he's still a boy at the time of the American Revolution. Um, describe, did he participate in the revolution in any way? Yes, he did. Uh, the uh, Revolutionary War uh, had some rather big actions on the in the backcountry of the Carolinas, and uh, Jackson didn't. He was much too young to actually be a soldier, and he was much too young to carry arms. But he kind of served as a scout for the uh, American troops. The militias and things, and he, um, you know, ran errands and was generally around the the military action. His older brother, uh, his oldest brother, actually was in a battle, and he died of heat stroke uh, after the Battle of Stono Ferry. And um, then Jackson and and his second oldest brother uh, were captured and uh, were held, and uh, both got very, very sick. And so um, their mother came to get them and bring them back home to nurse them, and his brother uh, made it home but did not survive very long after he got home. So the war was really quite traumatic on the Jackson family, it sounds like. There's a yes. pretty famous story also about a British officer and the young Andrew Jackson. Can you can you recall that story for us? Sure. Uh, while he was after he was captured, uh, 
a British officer came in and uh, demanded that Jackson clean his boots. And according to the story, Jackson refused, stating that he was a prisoner of war and he was not required to do that. And the uh, officer got quite angry and slashed at Jackson with his sword and uh, hit him in the head where he uh, cut his head. And then as Jackson was putting his hand up to protect his face, uh, the sword slashed Jackson's hand as well. And he carried those scars for the rest of his life. Quite proudly, if I remember. I, I think he wrote about it in <laughs> a, a few times during his life. Do you think uh, those events surrounding the revolution shaped his view on uh, his political views, uh, maybe his geopolitical views in terms of how he viewed uh, Great Britain as well? Oh, I think they certainly did. I mean, it was uh, very, uh, you know, he was he started out the war with three brothers and a mother, and he ended the war with no one. Uh, his mother had, after his other brother died, his mother went to Charleston to nurse some of his cousins who were uh, ill in Charleston, and while there, she contracted illness and also died. So he was left an orphan at 14, and uh, largely because of the Revolutionary War. And he, I think it just, um, you know, it it really influenced his thinking about the British, about the place of America in the in the world, and uh, his attitudes towards, um, I don't know family and things like that. So it, it was a definitely a huge influence on him. Very good. Well, let's pick this back up in just a moment. Let's spend a few minutes with our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hello, this is Rick Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. What is a full-service jeweler? Experienced staff, custom designers, in-house jewelry repairs, and beautiful jewelry. Yes, at Tillis Jewelry, we are passionate, knowledgeable, and committed to integrity. We strive to be the best in our community and in our profession. We build long-term relationships and become part of family traditions that will cross generations. We delight clients by providing an unparalleled selection, superior service, and exceptional value. Tillis Jewelry, we exceed your expectations. Debbie Matthews grew up and lives in beautiful Columbia, Tennessee. As a realtor, she is well-versed in homes, neighborhoods, development, and schools. She wants to share her love of her home state with others to help them find just the right place to raise a family, open a business, or develop a dream. From luxury listings to land, she can handle it all. She is the current leading producer, Nashville Realty Group. Contact Debbie Matthews Realtor at 615-476-3224. That's 615-476-3224. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. 
American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about Andrew Jackson, and we have joining us via phone Marsha Mullen, who is the chief curator at the Hermitage. Marsha, the Jackson biography on the Hermitage website states, quote, After the war, Jackson briefly resided with members of his mother's family, but soon went to Charleston and embarked upon a campaign of youthful adventure and mischief. I'm curious, what was the campaign of youthful adventure and mischief that Jackson took part in? <laughs> um, well, he um, had inherited a small amount of money from a uh, relative in Northern Ireland, probably his grandfather, and uh, he took off for Charleston and basically blew it. So he gambled and he raced horses and he generally raised hell. <laughs> Uh, That sort of corroborates his later stories, too, I think, Uh, which brings us to Tennessee. So in 1788, Jackson crosses the Appalachian Mountains into Tennessee. What brought him westward? Well, he had, uh, after his fun time in Charleston, he had uh, tried a number of occupations, including, believe it or not, school teacher, which just does not sound like Andrew Jackson. Um, And he finally decided to study law, which at that time was basically apprenticing yourself with a lawyer and uh, learning as much as you could uh, from that lawyer and then being uh, examined by a judge to uh, determine if you had enough knowledge of the law to practice. So it wasn't, uh, you didn't go to law school like you do now. And so he went up to North Carolina and studied with a couple of different attorneys there and while he was studying there he met um, a couple of uh, a man who was then appointed to be the uh, judge for the western district of North Carolina which was basically Tennessee Uh, Tennessee had not yet become a state and um, his friend Mr. McNary uh, asked Jackson if he wanted to come along and be the public prosecutor And Jackson said yes. So uh, at 21, he comes to Tennessee with Judge McNary and begins his law career. 
He he seems to have stood out in most of the communities in in which he was ensconced. What is it about his character or his physical stature that makes him stand out? Well, he was tall. He was six feet tall, which was pretty tall for that time, as well as being extremely thin. Um, so he had a kind of a striking appearance, and uh, he enjoyed getting involved in things. Uh, he got involved in troublesome things. He got involved in important things, and he just didn't sit back and watch. He got right there in the middle of it. Uh, and was kind of known for his fiery character, I believe, as well. A man who <laughs> stood up for his principles, no doubt. Uh, he took part in at least one duel uh, and another, for lack of a better term, street fight. Uh, can you tell us about what brought on these fights? Well, the duel with Charles Dickinson, which is the only actual duel he was in where shots were fired, um, he it started out as a disagreement about a horse racing bet and then later expanded to all kinds of other, um, well, accusations and uh, unfortunate statements about the other person. And there was a... Uh, statement about Rachel, and so that really fired Jackson up. But he was already pretty fired up about the horse race. And so uh, they went to Kentucky because dueling was illegal in Tennessee, and um, Jackson and uh, Mr. Dickinson, uh, you know, were not persuaded by their seconds to abandon the duel, and so they met on the dueling ground and Jackson was not a particularly great shot, and a poor, apparently Dickinson was a really good shot. And uh, Dickinson took the first shot, and Jackson didn't fall down, and so Dickinson thought that he had missed him. And then uh, Jackson took a shot, and his gun misfired, and according to the rules, he probably should not have refired his gun, but he did because the first one didn't work. And with his second shot, he shot Dickinson and uh, severely wounded him. And he later that day or the next day, I can't remember, uh, died of his wounds. What Dickinson did not know was that Jackson also was very badly wounded. Uh, he just managed to, I don't know how, stand up and not fall down and from the shot. And so uh, Jackson then was, of course, in really bad shape, too. And dueling had a really mixed history. Um, a lot of men did it. A lot of famous men died dueling, um, Alexander Hamilton being one. And um, it had its place in the system of honor of the time, but it was also considered slightly, I don't know, not right. And so it left a very mixed um, reputation upon anyone who actually was the uh, shooter who actually killed somebody as opposed to the person who got killed. Um, so it, it it left him in a, in a kind of a place that wasn't very good for his reputation. 
despite the fact that it was also considered a pretty honorable thing to do. So it was it was a very odd thing. Marsha, it seems to me it was a couple of years ago, I think, a couple of guys found Dickinson's body, and he has been uh, uh, reburied in the Nashville City Cemetery. So there's a there's a new headstone in the Nashville City Cemetery for a man that Andrew Jackson killed in a duel. Right. Uh, Dickinson was originally buried on his father-in-law's property, which is basically off of West End Avenue today. And uh, the property, of course, was later subdivided into residential lots. And so Dickinson was ended up being buried in someone's front yard. And uh, so researchers went to find the uh, real side of the grave and then moved the remains, what little there was, to City Cemetery. So Jackson came to national prominence as a military man. He was made general of Tennessee militia in 1802. Did he have any real military training? And how did he get this rank? Uh, well, other than and than his uh, teenage experience during the Revolutionary War, where he, you know, watched militia training and, you know, watched battles from afar, uh, that was his really own only formal military training. Uh, the position of general of the Tennessee State Militia was an elected position. So uh, he was elected the general of the Tennessee militia, so he did not gain the post through his military prowess, shall we say. Right. So he was sort of learning on the job. We had author Tony Turnbow on the show a few months ago, and he talked about Jackson's connection to the Natchez Trace. Tony's book called Hardened to Hickory has a wonderful description of Jackson's Nashville muster in December of 1812. Uh, It was his first time commanding men in a real military campaign, and he likened himself, Jackson, as a father figure to these raw recruits. It was at this time that he got the nickname Old Hickory. One of the greatest nicknames ever, I think. How, how did that come about? And do you know who first who first called him Old Hickory? Well, he um, at the beginning of the War of eighteen twelve, he wrote to the War Department and offered up the Tennessee militia's services, and uh, he was not taken up on this offer. And finally, in uh, let's see, eighteen thirteen. The Tennessee militia was called up and asked to go down to Natchez uh, and wait and see if there was going to be an invasion at New Orleans so they could be staged to uh, get there quickly. And they uh, moved on down the river, got to Natchez, and just as they got to Natchez, it became obvious apparently to the people in New Orleans that the British were not coming at that point. And so he received word from the War Department that uh, their services were no longer needed and they could all just go home. And uh, the War Department didn't offer to help in that effort. I mean, Jackson had all these troops down in Natchez and and it was, uh, you know, a long way back to Nashville and they, they weren't offered any means to get back here. They weren't offered any food. They weren't offered any money to help pay for it. Um, And so Jackson had to organize the 
the removal back to Nashville himself. And a number of the men were ill. Uh, there was not a very good supply of food. And Jackson um, gave up his own horse so that some sicker soldiers could ride and, uh, you know, did not take a huge share of the food. And finally, his men, um, you know, said that he was tougher than old hickory, which is, you know, really hard wood. They make baseball bats out of it. And um, the name just stuck. I don't think any particular individual has ever been identified as the one who actually called him old hickory. Right. Um, And I think that's a great segue. We're going to take our second break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the Battle of New Orleans. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. For a while now, you've been hearing me talk about Don, our guy in the red service truck. Well, it seems all that talking has paid off. He's now the best-known garbage man in Murray County. Thanks again, Don. If you or your family need garbage service at your home and want to do business with a great local company, then contact the Garbage Man. Call 931-540-0919 or visit us online at garbagemaninc.com. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we are continuing our series on the Tennessee presidents or the Andrew Jackson. We're joined in the studio by Barry Goodcomb and on the phone by Marsha Mullen from the Hermitage. Marsha, the event that really propelled Andrew Jackson into the national spotlight was the Battle of New Orleans. Jackson had about 5,700 men against British Major General Sir Edward Pakenham's 8,000 veteran troops. The outcome was staggering. 333 American casualties against 2,459 British casualties, one of the most lopsided victories in American military history. How did Jackson pull that off? Well, I think he um, 
probably understood the terrain of Louisiana a little better than Pakenham did. Uh, one of the things he did was station most of his troops behind a canal and uh, at a higher elevation than the uh, main battlefield area. And so they were shooting down onto the British troops, and uh, that that gave them a great advantage. Um, I think he also rounded up a, a wide and diverse, a group of people to be in his army and uh, they all had different skills so they weren't all just trained the same way so they ended up doing some things a little better than the others and then uh, there were some mistakes made on the British side chiefly that they didn't bring any ladders with them to climb up this uh, to this elevated area where the American troops were. They didn't have any way to get up there. So uh, that was a big mistake. Right. And uh, so it, it's a huge one-sided victory. For many years after that, January 8th was celebrated uh, as kind of like another 4th of July, another day of, of American independence, uh, Battle of New Orleans Day. When did that stop being a national holiday? Why don't we celebrate it today? <laughs> Well, we do still celebrate it here at the Hermitage. Um, I don't know exactly when it ended. Uh, probably, you know, during the times after World War I, uh, when, you know, other things came to the fore. Um, it, it always was pretty well established in Tennessee until, you know, later than even that. Um, the Hermitage has a ceremony every year on January 8th, and it's our annual free day. And so we do still recognize it as um, an important day in American history here. And um, so it, it has its vestiges, but no, it certainly isn't as big as it once was. Jackson continues fighting after New Orleans, this time in Florida against the Seminole Indians, which concluded with Spain ceding Florida to the United States and Jackson giving up his commission to become territorial governor. Was Jackson happy to turn in his sword for a pen? Um, it wasn't nearly as much fun, I don't think. He, his primary mission as territorial governor was to officially accept uh, um Florida from Spain, and once that official ceremonial acceptance situation occurred, he really wasn't too interested in in uh, doing anything further as territorial governor. He had very little desire at that point to um, actually, I guess, govern. He was still um, looking for some action, I think. So uh, he he. Um, became the territorial governor, but he resigned from the position pretty quick. It was not long after the Battle of New Orleans also that his name is really being touted as a possible presidential contender. Uh, was he politically ambitious? Or, or you're saying that perhaps that he liked the military life better than anything else. Uh, America would have different designs for him, obviously. But did he have his own political ambitions? I think he did. Um, he, he had ambitions. I'm not sure whether you could immediately describe them as political. He just, he 
definitely had ambitions and wanted to be something or do something. Uh, he uh, was, you know, quick to offer the militia troops to the United States government in order to get further into the action in the early part of the War of 1812. Uh, he certainly continued to promote uh, himself and the Tennessee militia after that. He was um, then made a general in the regular army after winning uh, the Creek War. And so that shows that he definitely wanted um, to keep moving upward. And so I, it was, um, he just, he just wanted to be something. Uh, controversy uh, we've, we've spoken about has been a part of <clears throat> Andrew Jackson's life generally, even in his choice of a wife. T- tell us a little bit about Rachel Jackson. How did the two of them meet? Uh, and what was their marriage like? Well, they met, uh, as we were talking about earlier, Jackson came to Tennessee in 1788 to uh, take up the position of public prosecutor. And uh, you didn't didn't go out and rent an apartment when you moved into town. Um, he boarded with um, Mrs. Donaldson, Rachel's mother. And one of the reasons Mrs. Donaldson was taking in boarders is that there was still a fair amount of Indian activity in the area, and she just liked having a few more men on the place than than just her family. So Jackson is there with. Mrs. Donaldson, uh, when Rachel and her husband, uh, her first husband, uh, Louis Robards, uh, came to a disagreement and Rachel came home for a while, uh, the stories about Rachel and Jackson's marriage and the, and the uh, chronology of the events of their marriage is very confused. Part of that is from... Uh, after when Jackson was running for president and this issue came up, his uh, people in Nashville, his Nashville committee, wrote a pamphlet to kind of explain away the rough edges of this whole marriage story because Rachel, you know, had been married and got divorced, which was a very unusual thing at that time. And um, they kind of... Slurred, I guess, the uh, the dates a little bit. Things they said things happened before they have actually. We now think that they actually happened or after they actually happened, and so they kind of messed up the timeline. And for years, really, until not too long ago, that that version of the the marriage and the events leading up to her divorce from Robards and her subsequent marriage to Jackson, uh, historians just pretty much followed the story that was in the Jackson Committee's pamphlet. But several people, Dr. Remini being one, um, and Ann Toplovich from the Tennessee Historical Commission being another, have delved a little more deeply into this story and have found a lot of holes in it, uh, in the version that's in the Nashville Committee's pamphlet. And so now there's a lot of questions about when things actually did occur and when they didn't occur, 
what their understanding was at the time that they supposedly got married the first time. Uh, Remini pretty much does not believe they actually did get married. They just came back from Natchez and announced that they were man and wife. Wow. Um, what we do know is that Jackson was exceedingly devoted to Rachel. He got into arguments and fights and defended her publicly on any number of occasions. So I, I think from that perspective, their their relationship was really quite extraordinary. Um, oh, yes. He was very devoted to her. And um, there was never any discussion of, of him... Uh, seeking a second wife after Rachel died. He uh, never he liked the company of ladies, but he never seemed to single one out as a possible successor for Rachel. Hmm. Marsha, up until a few years ago, uh, there was a gentleman down in Natchez, outside of Natchez, at a place I think he called Springfield Plantation, who maintained that that was the site and that Andrew and Rachel were married in the parlor and gave tours there he was not he was not part of what he called the uh the uh garden club mafia in, in Natchez and they didn't uh they they did not uh, accept him and uh, I spent a little time with him one day and then I I read Dr. Remedy's account and I realized that that probably did not happen yeah, there, as I said, the whole story gets very convoluted because of the way the Nashville Committee wrote their pamphlet. And uh, legally, at that time, Natchez was Spanish territory, and the only legal way to get married was to get married in the Catholic Church. And yet, uh, no Catholic priest would marry two Protestants. Um, so... There's no record of any legal marriage. Now, there may have been some kind of saying of vows in front of friends situation, but it was uh, not what you would call, well, it was not illegal in the terms of the Natchez government time uh, uh, ceremony. Uh, And that's what he was promoting is that Possibly uh, the man who owned Springfield Plantation, who was a well-respected man in the community, may have, you know, they may have had some party or social situation where they got up and they declared that they were going to be married or be man and wife, but there's no proof of it. Let's move on to uh, the two big elections, two national elections that Andrew Jackson was part of. The election of 1824 was a contentious one. It's the only election to require a contingent election by the House of Representatives as per the 12th Amendment because no candidate received the majority vote. How did this come about, and how did Jackson fare in the election of 1824? Well, um, there were four candidates running for president in 1824, Um Jackson, Henry Clay, and uh, John Ad- John Quincy Adams, and um, Henry Crawford. Crawford was very ill um, at, during the election. Anyway, so when the actual votes were counted, with four men, nobody got the majority required to avoid um, to win in the 
electoral college. And so then that sent it into the House of Representatives. Um, that was uh, then Jackson probably got the he got the highest number of popular votes, but he didn't get the highest number of votes in the electoral college. And uh, then when it went to the House of Representatives, Jackson always believed that Henry Clay uh, told his uh, constituents or followers or uh, the people who were voting for him to not vote for him, but to vote for Adams because Adams had promised him to become Secretary of State. And um, Jackson called it corrupt bargain. Jackson um, began campaigning for the 1828 election about two minutes after the House of Representatives voted, <laughs> and he lost. Uh, he was determined he was going to win the next time. Which he did in, in 1828. We're going to stop right here uh, with a cliffhanger. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. This is Jim Ross, and you are listening to Front Porch Radio, WKOM 101.7, located in Columbia, Tennessee. This is Bob Kessling with Pat Ryan. It's a beautiful day for digging. The backhoe operator has the engine running and is moving into position. He's heading for the ground. He's in there. Wait, there's a flag on the play. Let's get out of the field for the call from our official. Illegal procedure on the digging team. Oh, that penalty could cause a costly accident. That's right, Bob. He needs to call before he digs. There's underground utility lines that could be hiding just below the surface. Water, sewer, electrical, communication lines, and even natural gas. Avoid a penalty by first calling 811 to have any underground public utility lines located and marked with flags or paint. It's free, it's easy, and it's the law. For more tips, visit pipesafety.org. This message brought to you by the Tennessee Association of Broadcasters and the Tennessee Gas Association, funded in part by a grant from the Underground Utility Damage Enforcement Board. Hey, this is Jonathan Castile, a.k.a. John Boy, with John Boy's Handyman Service. One call and we'll handle it all. Truly means we'll handle it all. From pressure washing your house to doing remodeling, we're licensed, insured, and bonded. So rest assured, John Boy will handle it all. You can contact me at 931-242-7620 or my email, castilljonathan10 at gmail.com. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. 
Give us a call today from our website, memsmodernlandscape.com. That's memsmodernlandscape.com. And check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Hello, my name is Zach Maddox. I'm a proud third-generation owner-operator of Columbia Paint and Wall Cover, founded by my grandfather, Ralph Maddox, in 1946. Now I'm honored to continue the legacy as owner-operator today. We offer a variety of paint and wall covering products, but our passion is customer service. We can offer many personalized services and can come out to your house or business if needed. Visit us at our store, Downtown Columbia, at 1114 Carmack Boulevard, or online at paintcolumbia.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We're continuing our conversation about Andrew Jackson today. We just covered the election of 1824, which was uh, a contentious uh, election that year. Uh, Andrew Jackson called called it the election of the corrupt bargain and made a real enemy in Henry Clay. And as you said, Marsha, he almost immediately began running for president again in 1828. The election of 1828 was particularly bitter. There was mudslinging, terrible mudslinging and personal attacks on Jackson and even on his wife, Charles Hammond, in his Cincinnati Gazette asked, quote, Ought a convicted adulteress and her paramour husband be placed in the highest offices of this free and Christian land? Pretty rough words. How did this type of campaign affect Jackson and his wife? Well, Jackson, of course, was very angry about all these words, and his and his uh, Nashville committee. Uh, that was the impetus for writing the pamphlet that they made in um, that supposedly described the events coming up to the Jackson original marriage, and uh, they were trying to uh, straighten straighten out the story or else confuse the story to the point that nobody knew what happened. I'm not really sure what their motive was, but um, so that was, that was where that pamphlet came from. Rachel um, probably was aware of what was going on. There are a lot of odd stories about her death and how, oh, she was in Nashville shopping and she was taking a rest somewhere and she heard people, overheard people gossiping about her. But we're not entirely sure those stories are true. Um, She seemed to have been aware of things going on uh, as as they progressed. It wasn't a suddenly sudden shocking. Uh, revelation. So uh, her health had been kind of um, not great. She had some type of breathing problem. You know, when they describe illnesses from the early 19th century, it's a little bit hard to tell what they're talking about. But she had some kind of breathing problem uh, that may have led to um, COPD or a heart attack or something. So it's just real hard to tell what she died of, but Jackson uh, later concluded that part of it was uh, the stress of the of the campaign, although maybe not as much the stress of the campaign as the uh, let's see Charlton Heston and Susan Hayward version of the story. <laughs> Marsha, I think someone said in 1828 that the voters had a choice 
between John Quincy Adams, who can write, and Andy Jackson, who can fight? Well, yes, Adams definitely was the more cerebral of the two, that's for sure. Um, but the people chose. And so as we opened the show, Jackson wins. He's really sort of the first populist president. And he's the first president uh, that came from the West. Uh, as they said, Tennessee then considered the West Western portion of the United States. And he won handily, if I remember, in 1828. How, how close was that election? Uh, he, he did win easily. Um, over Adams. So um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was not a close election. Marcia, one of the things that that I take out of this election, we talk about the age of the common man in this period of time when one by one the states were amending their constitutions in such a way as to remove property requirements uh, for the right to vote. And in 1824, there were about 356,000 popular votes cast for the pres- in the presidential election. In 1828, there was 1.1 million. Uh, so it seems those, those numbers seem to bear out that Jackson benefited from the vote of the common man. Sure. Uh, uh, a lot of people get that a little bit mixed up. They think that Jackson was the person who... Uh, who got the requirements changed. But in reality, that movement was going along with or without Jackson, but Jackson did, as you say, certainly benefit from it. The Jackson victory ushered in a new chapter in American politics. For the first time, a Westerner, non-Eastern common man had been elected to the highest office of the land. Uh, What was the effect of that kind of an election, both then and in the long term? Well, in the in the short term, it uh, really fired people up. They got really uh, excited about politics and the fact that Jackson won and he was a different kind of person that had been president previously. Uh, in the long term, I think it really changed the way campaigns were conducted. Um, Jackson, there were campaign items produced when Jackson was running for president, but not a huge number. But a few years later, when William Henry Harrison was running against um, Martin Van Buren, or um, no, when William Henry Harrison was running, yeah, against Van Buren, uh, there were just tons and tons and tons of uh, political items, uh, lots of rallies, lots of craziness, and uh, it that form of campaigning, I think, has kind of stuck with us. What were some of the major political issues of the Jackson administration? What did he want to accomplish? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Uh, going into the presidency, I don't think he had any particular issues other than the fact that he thought somebody different should be president. Um, he did not campaign really on particular topics or platforms, uh, the issues kind of came to him um, after he was already elected. He didn't go into it saying, I'm going to get rid of the bank and pass Indian removal. Those all 
kind of happened afterwards. Right. It really was kind of a popularity election. Right. Uh, I think one of the biggest outcomes of his presidency, of course, is he killed the Bank of the United States, which changed the way that uh, national banking was done really ever after. It became a uh, a big policy for the for him and for several presidents after him. Um, Jackson believed, according to Robert Remini, uh, that all banks had an unnatural advantage bestowed on them from their government-granted charter. The charter allowed the bank owners to add to their already vast wealth, which they partly used to lobby legislatures and contribute to elected officials, creating corruption in the American political system. So uh, Jackson had a firm belief in that, but was probably the most contentious part of his presidency. Uh, what what followed as a result of his change in banking policy? Well, I don't think the results were exactly the results that Jackson was hoping for. Uh, the short-term results were um, that uh, there was actually a pretty big recession after Jackson uh, was president that sort of fell upon Martin Van Buren. Um, because of the change in the banking laws and uh, the move back to state banks rather than a national bank uh, that could kind of oversee national policy. Uh, and that, that was the thing that Jackson didn't like about it was that the bank was had that power to kind of make national policy. And uh, he didn't think that a non-elected entity such as the bank should have that power. But in the short term, by then not having that power, things kind of got out of hand real quick. Jackson became president uh, in 1828. He served how many terms? Two. Two terms, and then retired to the Hermitage. I hate to say this, Marsha, but we're out of time. Uh, we have so much more to talk about. I hope you'll consider coming back sometime to sort of help help fill in the story of Andrew Jackson. And we encourage our listeners to go to the Hermitage just outside of Nashville. It's one of the finest historic sites in Tennessee. Let's end the show with a Jackson quote. He said, ask nothing that is not clearly right and submit to nothing that is wrong. Thank you for listening to History's Hook. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. I'll never forget the day I decided to go out for the football team. Mr. Banks, the JV football coach and my history teacher, asked me to stay after class. I thought I was in trouble. He said, hey, Darius, have you thought about going out for football? I think you'd be great. Fact is, I never played football. Fact is, I never had anyone tell me I'd be great at something. So, 
with no experience at all, I signed up. And a week later, I padded up and was running drills on the field. I never was great, but playing high school sports was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I was accepted by my teammates, and I learned that when someone believes in you, you can believe in yourself. Encourage a student you know to take part in a high school sport. This message presented by the TSSAA and the Tennessee Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM FM, Columbia, Tennessee. 